Well, it's good to see you. Thank you for coming out on an afternoon to be with us. Praise God. The uh, celebration, commemoration of the resurrection of Jesus Christ is, Mike had said earlier already, something that us who believe in Him celebrate every day. It's nothing new to us, the resurrection. It is our daily the daily one we worship, we worship because He is raised. So today, though, we will take a break from our study of Ephesians to look at the resurrection of Jesus Christ, um, to focus on some things here, to just to remind us, and maybe we can take some of this stuff to people that we know who perhaps are not believers or who wrestle with this. Hopefully the Lord can encourage you to then take this to them and to show to them that the Scriptures are very clear. That Jesus Christ died, he was buried, he was re- resurrected, literally, in his body. Okay? So the religious world, though, outside of evangelical Christianity, uh, what we call nominal Christianity, perhaps, which we might label liberal Christian denominations, liberal in the sense they do not believe that the Bible is the inspired, inerrant, infallible Word of God. They, they, they therefore don't believe... In Jesus' virgin birth, they do not believe in His many miracles, um, and they deny His literal bodily resurrection. I don't know why they're called Christians, really, but that's what it is, right? And yet, they will dedicate at least one Sunday a year, because the calendar says to, right? Holy Week. And they will focus on the resurrection of Jesus. They will explain it away, though, by using very confusing Mystical, spiritual terms, spiritual language. It's like nailing jello to the wall. It's really kind of an interesting exercise to go search through your Google and and just ask, what do liberal Christians believe about the resurrection? And it comes up and you'll read all these very strange things. Um, They will explain it away by using terms. Resurrection means a spiritual renewal of sorts. They believe he died on the cross, but they believe he stayed dead. Okay, those who do believe that. That his, his resurrection to them was an invention of his hopeful followers. They were so distressed, they just made this up. So they, they've ran with that story ever since the day it happened. Right? The Jews paid people, hey, tell, tell the world that the disciples stole the body. It's been saying that ever since. Okay. You ever heard of Harry Emerson Fostick? I hope not, but he's a liberal Baptist from the early 1900s, back in New York. Very prolific writer, unbelievable. He didn't believe the Bible to be God's word. But in the early 1920s, he explained the resurrection of Christ with this phrase. It is a persistence in Christ's personality. Whatever that means. (laughs) Whatever that means, right? Um, perhaps you've heard of Martin Luther King Jr. He wrote once concerning the resurrection that the disciples, he's writing about them, quote, they had been captivated by the magnetic power of his Christ's personality. And he added to that, this basic experience led to the faith that he could never die. That, he wrote that, right? So to him then, the resurrection is a mere emotional experience. Okay, um, and 
Martin Luther King Jr. was not a Bible believer. He was a liberal Christian, okay? Um, he did not believe in the literal resurrection. He believed it was an emotional experience. The bodily resurrection of Jesus simply is the outward expression of early Christian experience, not an actual or at least a verifiable event in human history. Um, I beg to differ. For us, right, Bible-believing, gospel-centered, born-again, um, Christ followers, we believe just as the scriptures say. In fact, Folsom Bible Church believes in the actual, literal, bodily resurrection of Jesus of Nazareth. The very same body that was hung on the cross and laid in the tomb is the very same body that actually literally raised from the dead on the third day. Okay? We believe the resurrection is connected and the crucifixion and resurrection are together and are absolutely essential to the gospel, to true Christianity, to the salvation of souls. Okay? So the question is, just to throw that out there and we move on, is do you believe that Jesus was literally raised from the dead? Yes. Turn to 1 Corinthians, please. And we're going to, as you can guess, be all over the place. So if, if you can't follow, please write these down, truly, because it's worth it. And, and I'm coming at it to kind of encourage you to then take this to people that you know that might be struggling with this. So this might be helpful. Right? It's not exhaustive. It's not exhaustive, but it's at least seed form. First Corinthians 15. The, the gospel is what Paul lays out here very clearly. Verse 1 through 4 at least. And we'll be back to this chapter two or three times this morning, this afternoon. But in verse 1 of 1 Corinthians 15, notice how Paul writes here. Now I make known to you, brethren, talking to Christians, the gospel which I preach to you, which also you received, welcomed, in which you also stand, fixed. You're standing in this gospel, verse 2. By which also you are saved by this gospel. If you hold fast the word which I preach to you, unless you believed in vain, worthless. Okay? Verse 3. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins, substitutionary. According to the scriptures, that would be Old Testament in the time of the writing of 1 Corinthians. Okay, Verse 4, and that he was buried. 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 <laughs> and that he was raised on the third day, notice, according to the scriptures. Okay, um, That would be Old Testament scriptures that spoke of his death and spoke of his burial and spoke of his resurrection. So you could preach Christ crucified, buried, and resurrected without going to the New Testament, right? According to that verse, okay? It was predicted in the Old Testament, okay? It's more clear, obviously, in the New Testament, but you could do that. So this, notice again, my point here is we believe that is the, 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 the resurrection is essential to the gospel as this is saying. This is what he received from Jesus Christ. And if you remember in Paul's history, three and a half years in Damascus in the desert, the resurrected Jesus taught theology to Paul, right? And that was the gospel that he then proclaimed all over the Mediterranean. And that's what he's saying here. I received what I just delivered to you. I received that from the resurrected Christ. What a theology class that would be, huh? Right? So, death, burial, resurrection. The resurrection is essential to the gospel, obviously. Now, in this same chapter, skip over to verse 12. 
There were people in the Corinthian church, obviously they're false teachers, they are tares amongst the wheat because they teach something contrary to what Paul just said. They said there is no resurrection. Look at verse 12 through 19, it is so worth, and notice the repetition of how he argues here, the repetition of if, if. So he's laying out and throwing out these questions, if this, then this, if this, then this. What a great way to teach, right? He's parallel in this. Look at verse 12. Now, if Christ is preached that he has been raised from the dead, how do some among you say there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there is no resurrection of the dead, not even Christ has been raised. Verse 14, and if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is vain, it's worthless. And guess what? Your faith is also worthless. Verse 15, moreover, more than that, we are even found to be false witnesses of God. Because we testified against God that He raised Christ, whom He did not raise, if in fact the dead are not raised. So verse 15 saying, even beyond what we just said, it makes us to be liars. Because we told you that God did raise up Christ. But if Christ isn't raised, we lied to you. Right? Okay, look at verse 16. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And what's the so what of that is verse 17. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is worthless, and you are still in your sins. That is not a good place to be, beloved. Verse 18, Then those who have also who have fallen asleep, that is the euphemism for dying in Christ, have what? Perished. If Christ is not raised, then those who said they believed in Christ and then physically died, perished. Right? Perished means go to hell. Judgment. Not just died. Right? Verse 19 says it like this. If we have hoped in Christ in this life only, we are of all men most to be pitied. If Christ is not raised. Verse 20. Ah, but now Christ has been raised from the dead. The first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. So the essentialness of the, of the resurrection cannot be overstated. And this is very clear here, right? The Apostle Paul certainly believed in the resurrection. So did all the apostles, and we'll see this. And so, so has the church since its inception and all the way through history to this very day. Christians, Bible-believing, gospel-loving, Christ-loving people believe in the resurrection, okay? You cannot have Christianity without resurrection. You can't have the gospel without resurrection. You cannot be saved without the resurrection. You're still in your sins. You can't be saved and deny the resurrection. Look at, um, listen to Romans 10.9. Listen to this. If you confess with your mouth Jesus as Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be what? Saved. Right? So you cannot deny the resurrection of Christ and be a Christian. You cannot be saved. You're still in your sins. That's how important it is, right? Obviously. Um, And if you've ever been around professing religious Christian people who deny the resurrection, hopefully you haven't. But if you have, like I've had, I don't know if it's a privilege or opportunity, but it's certainly an experience. (laughs) It's stunning. It's absolutely stunning to have someone profess to you they're Christians and deny the resurrection. You know what Paul would say? You're a liar. You're not a Christian. So it's a big deal. Okay, for the rest of our time here, I want to remind us, and then I want to apply this. I have three main points. The certainty of his death, 
the certainty of his resurrection. And then I want to notice, there's many, but I'm just going to focus on two results of the resurrection in the life of a believer. So the certainty of his death, the certainty of his resurrection, and most of our time we spent on the results of that resurrection in our lives, okay? So then, um, the, 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 the results, just before we go on, I'm going to look at justification and I want to look at sanctification, okay? And we'll explain it more as we get there, but it's, it's huge. But first, let's begin with the certainty of his death. This may seem strange at first to try to prove his death, but there are, there are those who don't believe he actually died there. Doceticism was an ancient heresy that the, uh, the Islamic Muslims carry on, and there's other liberal outfits that carry on this docetic thought. Docetic means to seem, okay? It just seemed like he died. He swooned, right? He passed out. Um, the, some, some groups believe that somewhere between his flogging and the crucifixion, he, he escaped and somebody took his place that looked like him. Right? Can you believe that? <laughs> um, and so they deny his death so that they can deny his resurrection. You see how important it is to establish, as strange as it sounds, that he actually died because you can't have resurrection if you don't have a death. And he actually did die physically. Um, and remember this, Hebrews 9 says, without death, there's no remission of sins. There's no forgiveness of sins, 927. Okay. Um, so if you would go to John, the Gospel of John, verse 19. I'm just going to look at one paragraph here, which will suffice for the death of Christ. And we know these things, so I'm kind of taking license here, assuming some things. Um, but this will suffice. John 19, and we will look at verse 30 through 42. And just to, and I'm using this to lay down the certainty of his death. Okay, in verse 30 of John 19, the Word of God would say, Therefore, when Jesus had received the sour wine, remember he's on the cross here, he said, It is finished. And he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. That's how sovereign he is. Nobody dies like this unless you control what's going on. Right? We struggle and fight to the very end. Jesus said when it's done, he gave up his spirit. Remember John 10? Nobody takes the life from me, but I lay it down and I take it up. Right? He, uh, Jesus Christ bowed his head and gave up his spirit. Verse 31, notice. Then the Jews, because it was the day of preparation, so that the bodies would not remain on the cross on the Sabbath. Look what it says here. For the Sabbath was a high day, asked Pilate that their legs might be broken, gruesome, and that they might be taken away. Do you know why they would break their legs? It's so they can not push up and get air in their lungs, right? So they die from asphyxiation. Right, suffocating. And if you break your legs, you can't push yourself up. What a gruesome thing, right? So in verse 32, So the soldiers came and broke the legs of the first man and the other who was crucified with him. Verse 33, But coming to Jesus, when they saw that he was already dead, they did not break his legs. Okay. Now think about this. We're, remember, we're laying down the certainty of his death. Here you have Roman guards, Roman soldiers who are professional killers, and especially executioners. And if they foul up, it's their head. Yes. 
If they don't accomplish what they've been sent to do, it's their head. And they know when someone's dead or not. He didn't pass out on the cross. right? He died. And so, so certain were they that he died and was dead when they got there. They didn't do what? They didn't break his legs. But they broke the other two. Right? So here's evidence that Christ is dead. All right? Actually dead. Verse 34. But instead, one of the soldiers pierced his side with a spear, and immediately blood and water came out. And some people would argue that's showing that death process is already taking place in the separation of the serum and the blood. Okay? I'll give you that if that's true. But I do know this. He's dead. And look at why they didn't break his legs. You think God is so sovereign? Why did, why did they stick a spear in him? Look at the next verse, 35. And he who has seen has testified. His testimony is true. He knows that he's telling the truth so that you also may believe, 36, for these things came to pass to fulfill the scripture already spoken. Not a bone shall be broken. That's why they didn't break his legs. That's why he died when he died. And then the next verse, 37, another scripture says, they shall look on whom whom they pierced. That's Zechariah 12, 10, okay? Pierced with the sword, the spear. That's why he was pierced through, to fulfill Scripture. The Roman soldier didn't know that Scripture, but God did, right? That's how sovereign God is. Unbelievable. 38 and following, please. After these things, remember we're looking at the certainty of his death. Joseph of Arimathea, being a disciple of Jesus, but a secret one for fear of the Jews, asked Pilate that he might take away the body of Jesus, and Pilate granted permission, so he came and took away his body. Others, other gospel accounts say that Pilate asked the centurion, is he really dead? And the centurion reported back to Pilate, yes, he's dead. That's, that then is when Pilate says, okay, you can take his body. Okay. Look at verse 39. Nicodemus, you remember him from John 3? who had first come to him by night, also came bringing a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about a hundred pounds in weight. So they took the body of Jesus. I think they would know if he was dead or not. They're carrying him around, right, to the tomb. Bound in linen wrappings with the spices, as is the burial custom of the Jews. 41, now in the place where he was crucified, there was a garden, and then in the garden a new tomb, in which no one had yet been laid. That also fulfills scriptures. Verse 42, therefore, because of the Jewish day of preparation, since the tomb was nearby, they laid Jesus there. Okay. Now that scripture, I think, suffices to show, right, he died. He actually died. If you needed more proof, you could go all to all four Gospels. Look at the account. There's a little more details in each one, but they basically say the same thing here, that he actually died on that cross. And the professional soldiers who are professional executioners, they validate it. Okay? They, by piercing him and not breaking their legs, piercing him, they affirm to us that he actually died. Okay? He's dead taken down and laid in a tomb. That's what you do with people who have died, right? And that's where he's at. And he's in this tomb, okay? All right. From there, then, let's move on to the certainty of his resurrection and go to the Gospel of Luke, chapter 24. Gospel of Luke, chapter 24. So this Christ who died... Now, we're just looking right now at the historical event. Not the whys, but what, right? The historical event... The historical event of the gospel is that he died physically. It's like watching the movie by Mel Gibson, right? What is that called? Um, Passion of 
passion of Christ. You can watch it happen, but it doesn't tell you why. It's a historical event, and that's what I'm showing you now, okay, is the event of it. He actually died, and the certainty of his resurrection, Luke 24, look at 1 through 6, and then we'll skip over into verse 36 after this. 24, verse 1. On the first day of the week, which is a Sunday, at early dawn, they came to the tomb, bringing the spices which they had prepared. And they found the stone rolled away from the tomb. And when they entered, they did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. And when they, they were perplexed about this in verse 4, behold, two men suddenly stood near them in dazzling clothing. Um, other scriptures tell us these are angels. Okay? So you have angelic peoples in brilliant white standing there all of a sudden in their midst in a dark tomb in the early morning. Yeah? Verse 5. And as the women were terrified and bowed their faces to the ground, these two men, these angels said to them, the great line in verse 5, why do you seek the living one amongst the dead? <laughs> I love that. Why do you seek the living one amongst the dead? That's like water and oil. They don't go together. Verse 6, notice, he's not here, but he has risen. Remember how he spoke to you while he was still in Galilee. Stopping right there. The certainty of his resurrection begins with the empty tomb. His faithful followers come. The angelic testifiers say, he's not here, he is risen. Okay. By the way, the enemies of Christ never have found a body. They've never presented a body. The Romans never presented a body. The Jews never presented a body. And don't you know if they found one, they would present it. Right? So no one has ever found the body of Christ. Many have touched him as he's been alive. And many have heard him speak. But no one's drug his body into public and said, Here he is, this, this imposter. They can't do it because they can't find his body. Right? Um, that's just one thing here. Look at, uh, please, verse 36 of Luke 24. The certainty of his resurrection. This is now after the road to Emmaus and some time has gone by, maybe a week or so. Uh, verse 36, notice, while they were telling these things, he stood, he himself stood in their midst, this, this Jesus. He himself stood in their midst and said to them, Shalom, right? Peace, peace to you. But they were startled and frightened and thought they were seeing a spirit. A ghost, right? And he said to them, Why are you troubled and why do doubts arise in your hearts? Fascinating. Look at verse 39. Do you see the continuity? The body that died is the body that's raised. Because in 39 he says, See my hands? Why would he say, See my hands? Is he telling them to look at the, look at the calluses from all my hard work? No, he's saying, he's saying Look at the hole from my cross work. That's what he's saying. Look at, the, look, at the, look at the bloody hole that the spike went through. Look, it's me. It's the same body. That's fascinating. It's me, Jesus of Nazareth. And he goes on in verse 39, please. And my feet. It's amazing that they work, right? They just had, a, they just had spikes drilled through it or hammered through it. I, and it is I, myself, the emphasis here, yeah? Touch me and see, for a spirit does not have flesh and bones as you see that I have. That is amazing. The resurrection of Christ is flesh and bone. 
That's amazing. We too will be raised with flesh and bone. He's the first fruit, remember? He's the prototype of which is to follow. He's alive. I too shall live. It's more than just a mental experience those unbelievers tell us about, right? It's an actual, literal, physical, bodily resurrection of flesh and bone. And it's the power of God to restore this, right? And obviously it's far beyond the the body that was pre-cross. Our body also will be raised and it will be very different than this body right here. But there will be a continuity. There will be a, 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 a similarity between your pre and next. Just like Jesus, right? It's fascinating. But the, the emphasis of the, of the Gospels is that body that was nailed to the cross and put in the grave is the one that was raised up from the dead. Okay, that's, that's the important thing to get here. Um, so then look at verse 40. And when he had said this, he showed them his hands and his feet while they still could not believe it. I love this last phrase. Because of their joy and amazement. Let us not grow weary and too familiar and too ho-hum at the incredible, amazing reality that Christ has been raised. Try to, in your sanctified imagination, enter into this text. See if the Spirit of God can, can, can excite your senses as though you were there afresh. Right? Yes, this is old to me. Right? I read this all the time. I know this. But does that make it boring? No. And let's fight to not be bored. Let's fight through prayer. Ask God to excite our senses afresh, man. I want to be at that cross. I want to... Can I be so sick as to say, I want to smell the, the sweat and the blood. I want to smell the dirt. I want to smell filthy Jerusalem in the first century. I want to hear the agonies because of the sadness that Mary's son is nailed to the cross or the disciples' masters beaten and crucified. We read through it way too fast and it doesn't affect us. It doesn't affect us. Shame on us. Enter back to that. See him there and hear his words. And think about how stunned those first disciples would have been. They don't understand what you and I understand at that time, right? For some reason, they didn't understand his words when he told them over and over and over, I must be delivered over, crucified, and raised on the third day. Some reason, they couldn't put it together, right? So they're shocked. They're stunned. They're sad, full of sorrow. Their beloved one is hanging on the cross and dies. Think about that. And then take, and then go here. He's alive. He's alive. It's him. Mary, remember Mary, when she found out, Rabboni, it's you. And she clutched him and hung on. She says, I am not letting you go now. Uh-uh. <laughs> he goes, no, you got to let me go. I have not ascended to my father yet. Right? Verse 41. While they stood, while they still could not believe it, they're stunned. Why are they so stunned? Because of their joy 
in amazement, their wonderment. He's alive. Look at what he says further to show the reality of the continuity of this body that's the same but it's been raised. He says, have you anything here to eat? (laughs) What a funny question, right? I'm hungry, right? 42, they gave him a piece of broiled fish and he took it and ate it before them. Why do you think he takes it and eats it before them? What's his purpose? He's flesh and bone. He's, 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 he's human. Resurrected God-man, but he is all human, is he not? 100% human. And the same body hung and buried and raised up is the same body, and he eats a fish. Which is fascinating. That's just fascinating. Right? I just so the certainty of his death and the certainty of his resurrection it cannot be denied. Um, from here, go to First Corinthians fifteen again, please. I just want to show you because in the Gospels he appears to his closest disciples, and the opponents, you know, you know, the the Jewish leaders would say, well, they're just they're a bunch of liars anyway, and they all got together and the few little group of them said, you know what, make up this story. Um, but when you get to 1 Corinthians 15, uh, starting in verse 5, I w- notice the repetition, please. 5, 6, and 7, and 8. You see the word, at least my New American Standard has the word appeared. Do you see it there? Repeated. Verse 5, verse 6, verse 7, verse 8. It's the emphasis of the Spirit of God in that this one who was crucified, buried, and resurrected, he also appeared. Right? In verse 5, he appeared to Cephas. Who's Cephas? Peter. And then to the twelve. Verse 6. After that, look at the timing, the historical reality of this. After that, he appeared to more than 500 brethren. They can't all be out of their mind at the same time. right? They didn't all drink the Kool-Aid at the same day. Right? Certainly one person there says, hey, wait a minute. <laughs> right? He ain't real. No, it's like, right? there's 500 people who are in his presence. That's just fascinating to me. Right? That's a, that's, a, that's a sanctuary full of people experiencing the same thing. There he is. Wow. Look what else, please. Verse 6 says, He appeared to more than 500 brethren at one time. Look at this. And if you have any questions, you can go find them and ask them because it says most of them remain until now. This is 25 years later. For 25 years, these people have been preaching Christ crucified and resurrected. Right? And if you have any doubt about it, there's some of those people who are still here. You can go get their address and talk to them. Right? You can go Google them up and go find them. Right? That's awesome. The certainty of his resurrection. He appeared to Cephas in the twelve. He, is, he appeared to five hundred and some of them are still here. Some have gone asleep. Some have died. Verse 7, notice please, he repeats a third time. He then appeared to James and then to all the apostles. This James here most likely is the half-brother to Jesus Christ. Okay? And if you remember from the Gospel accounts, his family in the Gospels, did they believe Christ or not? No. They thought he was out of his mind. They stood outside and sent somebody in there and said, please get him. He's, he's talking foolishness. He thinks he's now from heaven and he's the Messiah. No, he was raised in Nazareth. That's my baby. Right? That's my brother. They thought he lost his mind. That's when Christ says, who's my brother? Who's my family? but those who obey the Word of God. Okay? 
So this, so think about the, the, the two names mentioned here. This is fascinating. Verse 5 is Cephas. 6, there's no names of the people, just 500. 7 is James. What's, what is, what does Cephas and James have together in common, right? Cephas is not a, is not a, an example of faithfulness, <laughs> is he? No. I mean, he cowered back when a little girl asked him if you're one of the followers, yeah. right? He, this is Peter. James wasn't even a believer until after the resurrection. Jesus went to him, and that's when James became a believer. Right? So isn't it interesting that Jesus Christ, in this text of Corinthians, appeared purposely to two guys mentioned here who are not your poster child of faithfulness. So they're not about to make up a story about Jesus Christ, man, unless it's real, right? Unless it's real. And look at the last one. It gets even, even gooder, verse 8. Verse 8, And last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared to me, this Apostle Paul, right? One who was premature, the, the idea of the untimely born is premature, like a premature birth even. One who's prematurely born, which is not a real glorious presentation. I mean, if you're going to appear to somebody, why didn't he appear to the strong and the mighty? He appeared to Peter and James and Paul. What's Paul famous for before conversion? Persecuting the church. And he even mentions it, doesn't he, there in the next verse? He says, verse 9, he says, For I'm the least of the apostles, not fit to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church. Jesus appeared to Peter, to James, and to Paul. That's fascinating. They're not going to make up stories about the resurrection, right? If you're going to convince somebody, those are three people that probably are not so easily convincing. But he appeared to them on purpose. And then to 500 without names, of whom some are still alive. You see, it's just fascinating. He literally died. He literally rose from the dead. And we have to move on here, right? What is the results then? Massive, and I'm only going to mention the two. Go to Romans 4, please. And what I want to mention here is the results of his resurrection in the lives of the believer um, the first thing I want us to get to is Romans 4, and I want to read from verse 20 to 25, but because that, that paragraph is, makes sense, and in in the verse of our attention will be verse 25. But look at verse 20. He's talking about Abraham here, so we're picking it up in midstream, but verse 20. Yet with respect to the promise of God, he's talking about Abraham, he did not waver in unbelief, but grew strong in faith, giving glory to God. Verse 21, And being fully assured, Abraham was, that God, what God had promised, he was able also to perform. Okay? Verse 22, Therefore, it was credited to him as righteousness. So that Abraham's faith that God is able to do what he's promised, he's referencing Genesis 15, 6, when Abraham looked up at the stars and believed that God said, when God said to Abraham, your descendants will outnumber the stars, when he was an old man, he believed that God is able to do that. Verse 22, that's when he was saved. It was credited to him as righteousness. 
Okay? Verse 23, Now not for his sake only was it written that it was credited to him, verse 24, but for our sake also, to whom it will be. Look at the tense here. Look at what he's saying here. To whom it will be, verse 24, credited as those who believe in him who what? Raise Jesus our Lord from the dead. Now stop right there. Do you see what he's saying? Abraham's information was the promise of God that his descendants would outnumber the stars. Even though he's an old man and Sarah's an old lady. Right? But Abraham believed. And the text says God credited that faith as righteousness. He then applies it to us today. That was Abraham's object of faith. Our object of faith is this, that God is able to raise up Jesus from the dead. Do you believe that? See, that's what he says here, right? Verse 24 again, as middle of the verse, as those who believe in him who raised Jesus our Lord from the dead. And then verse 25, he who was delivered over because of our transgressions and was raised because of our justification, right? So my point here is the the first result that I want us to just get our minds about that come about from the resurrection of Jesus Christ is your justification. He mentions in 25, he was delivered over, he was handed over to be crucified, to be put to death in verse 25 because of our transgressions. Okay? If you don't have the second half of verse 25, you don't have justification. If he doesn't raise from the dead, his death is worthless. If he doesn't be raised from the dead, all his promises of your salvation are lies, futile and vain. Okay? There's no, no merit to it whatsoever if he is not raised from the dead. You are still in your sins if Christ is not raised from the dead. So the first result that we have to grasp and the importance of the literal resurrection of Christ is my justification is wrapped up in that. It's the result of his resurrection. Okay, His death does not atone for anything. His death does not pay for anything. His death does not propitiate, expiate, doesn't do any of that if he's not raised from the dead. But since he is, so look at this text. He died, was handed over to be crucified because of our sins. He was raised for our justification. Right? Now think about it. Isn't that fascinating? That is saying then that in the resurrection of Christ, what it proves and what it accomplished was that, that his death was indeed a propitiation. His death was indeed a payment made. His death was the means of redemption. You see, his death was accepted by God the Father as the payment. If God doesn't raise him up, it shows that God did not accept his payment and he's like every one of us. He can't die for your sin. He can't even die for his own. Right? But since he was raised... Because think of it. What's the wages of sin? If he's not raised from the dead, the proof of that is he's a sinner. He's not a sinner. He went there for your sin, not his sin. Right? So the proof of the... Res- what the resurrection proves is that Jesus is sinless. And that he can justify you, right? So the resurrection is proof that God can promise what he said. And what does he say in the gospel? Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you shall be saved. You're justified by works or what? Justified how? 
by faith. If Christ is not raised, that promise is a lie. But what the resurrection proves is the promise of God is true. That if you place your faith in this resurrected Jesus, you shall be justified before God. How glorious. You see that how it connects to Abraham who believed what God said and looked at the stars. Wow, I think I guess God can do whatever he says. We're over here. What has God said? If you believe in my son who's been resurrected, you shall be justified. You shall be forgiven of all your sin. If you place your faith in this Jesus. You see? So we are like Abraham in that sense. We believe God is able to do what he has promised. He's promised to save those who believe. And that's proven by the resurrection. So he actually died. He actually was buried. He actually was raised from the dead. Thus proving his death did accomplish what he says it will accomplish. You place your faith in that Jesus, your sins are expiated. Your sins are propitiated. God's wrath is appeased. That's glorious. Right? The resurrection is for your justification. Um, Not only does the death propitiate, pay for your sin, okay? What's the second part of justification? Um, When you're justified, you're being declared righteous, right? Um, Can we go to uh, Philippians 3, 9 real quick? I know you know this, but this is worth, this is worth dying for. Because this, this is what the Reformation was all about. This is what Christianity is all about. This is worth dying for. right? Because if you foul this up, then you foul up salvation. Um, and we don't want to be that way. Right? Look at 3.9. Philippians 3.9. And he says, May be found in him. He says, I, Paul, may be found in him, Christ. What does that mean? Further, verse 9. Not having, not possessing a righteousness of my own, derived from the law, the law of God. So what he says there, not having from my own obedience to the law of Moses this righteousness. I don't possess that, he says in verse, but he continues, notice, but, in the middle of verse 9, but that which is is through what? Faith in who? Christ. Christ. The righteousness which comes from who? How? On the basis of faith. If God is not raised, if Jesus is not raised from the dead, this does not happen. Because He's not righteous. But because He is righteous, pure righteous, He is divine righteous, the grave can't hold Him because the wages of sin is death. He has no sin. He took your sin, not His sin. And so the grave could not hold Him in proof that He is righteous in character, just as God is righteous, is the empty tomb. And by putting your faith in Him, not only is your sins expiated, propitiated in the death of Christ, in the resurrection, the proof is that His righteousness is imputed to you. Right? So that God looks at your account, and what He sees there, He says, paid in full, and on the other side it says, righteous is Christ. Because it's Christ's righteousness that's stamped on you. The robes, the, the, the Old Testament has this picture of robes. Right? And so it's like a robe of righteousness that cloaks the believer. That robe of righteousness is the perfect obedience and character of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. 
That's the promise of God, and that's what you're trusting in when you hear that gospel promise. The resurrection proves that God did that. And if you truly have faith today in Jesus Christ, you are resting in the finished work of Christ, and His righteousness is the means by which God will say, Come on in. He's not going to look at you and say, Wow, you're really good, right? I want you on my team. That's sickening. No, you and I are polluted, right? Christ. It's all Christ. And it's His righteousness that He grants you through faith. Is that not glorious? That's the gospel. That's worth dying for, beloved. And many have died for that message right there all over this world. Because if you foul that up, you foul up people's eternal destinies. right? Um, and you dishonor God. 2 Corinthians 5.21 He who knew no sin was made sin so that we might become the righteousness of God in Him. Right? The imputed righteousness of Christ when you believe. The resurrection proves that. Okay? Um, secondly, moving fast, um, the second result that I want to look at um, is every bit as glorious as important. Justification, by the way, is a one-time declaration of God. You're not being justified now. You will get this, please, if you have not. Listen carefully. And this is the difference between us and Catholicism and other self-righteous things. True biblical Christianity teaches that when you are declared righteous by God, it is a one-time declaration of God that needs no alterations, no additions. You're not going to be lacking in any righteousness sometime in the future. You will be no more justified in heaven than you are right now today. You know why that is? It's because it's the righteousness of Christ that has been imputed to your account. Does that make sense? Yes. So you're not becoming more justified. That's Catholicism. That's Catholic teaching. That's heresy. Right? That denies the sufficiency of Jesus Christ. We don't do that. He's fully sufficient. All right. In Him you are complete. Colossians 2.9. All right. But the second thing here is your sanctification. Um, and when I mean sanctification... I want to just focus on this one aspect of sanctification, and that is our battle with sin. Our personal battle with daily sin. There's, there's three aspects to sanctification. Have been sanctified, being sanctified, and that's what I want to emphasize, and then will be sanctified. Scripture speaks of three aspects of that, okay? And sanctified means set apart, yeah? Set apart from sin and a complete statement would be set apart from sin, set apart unto God. We are being in the process sanctified. And that deals with our personal battle with personal sin. Okay, daily battle. Okay, um, Go to Romans 6, please. And we're, we're going to just touch on this. Because in Ephesians, we will address this more thoroughly. But I just really wanted to lay this out um, just a little bit here. Romans 6. This is such good stuff, man. You've heard of, I think, because Ephesians 1 talked about it over and over, the phrase, in Christ, in Him. It talks about a union with, a, with Christ. Okay, A spiritual union with Jesus Christ. It's the work of the Spirit. You don't feel it. You don't do it. He does it. Okay, The moment you were saved, the moment you were converted, He united you to Jesus Christ. Okay. 
In Romans 6, please, 1 through 11, and we're just going to read and make some comments. I hope it's fruitful. This is amazing stuff. In light of the resurrection, please. He says in verse 1 of chapter 6, What shall we say then? Now, obviously, he's coming off of 5, which is the free grace of God and the righteousness is freely given to those who believe. Okay, no matter your character, right? Um, praise God, because I have hope then, right? Look at verse 1. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin so that grace may increase? May it never be, or God forbid. How shall we who died to sin still live in it? Verse 3. What do you mean, died to sin, Paul? Well, or do you not know that all of us who have been baptized, immersed into Christ Jesus, have been baptized into His death? Is there, is there such thing as any believer, truly born-again person, who has not been baptized into Christ? No. This is, this is true of every single believer. Okay? This is true of every single born-again person united to Christ, and in particular where he starts, in his death. Okay? So you are united to the one who died on the cross. Verse 4, look at therefore. So in light of that, we have been, notice the tense of the verbs here, buried, there's my word, buried with him. Through baptism, this is not water baptism, by the way. This is dry. This is spiritual baptism. This is the work of the Spirit immersing you into Christ. Okay? All right. We have been buried with Him through baptism into death so that the result, as Christ was raised from the dead, how? Through the glory of the Father, So we too also might walk in newness of life. This is great stuff. Please look at this again in verse 4. He is emphasizing our union with Christ so that Christ's experience becomes our experience. You see, because you are immersed in Him. You're united with Him. So when He died, you died. When He was raised, you were raised. Okay. Now you just have to take that from the scriptures because you'll go, how, what? Uh, well, hold that thought. Look at verse 4 again. So in the middle of the verse, so that as Christ was raised from the dead, and he was, how did that happen? Through the glory of the Father. And notice how it applies to us. So we too which is to imply just as Christ, we too also yeah, might walk in newness of life. So then, we do, have, we do have new life. We do have a new disposition. We have new, we have new uh, energies flowing through us because we are united to the living one. We are united to the resurrected Christ. Okay? So that we walk in newness of life. It's, so then there's a change. You can't be united to this Christ and continue in the same way. That's what this is saying. We too also walk in newness of life. Well, okay, 
Look at what it says. Verse 5 starts with 4. He's going to explain further what he means. For if we become united with him, my New American Standard says, in the likeness of his death, certainly we shall also be in the likeness of his what? Resurrection. Resurrection. Fascinating. Verse 6, knowing this, so something that's not confusing, it's not, they're not ignorant, knowing this, verse 6, that our old self, our old man was what? Crucified with Christ. Why was it crucified with Christ in verse 6? Read it loud. You got it, sis. Wow. Something radical happened. Before this, I am nothing but a slave to sin. Amen? I am nothing but a slave to sin before conversion. The resurrection not only justifies us and declares us righteous once and for all, but it also affects my daily life. I'm united to the one who's alive from the grave. And I walk in newness of life, this life that's no longer bound to to sin and the law. He goes on in verse 6 and says, as we say, that we have been crucified so that in order our body of sin might be done away with. Why is what happens then? We would no longer be slaves to sin. Let me ask you this, believer. Are you a slave to sin if you are a born-again believer? No, sir. Do we still sin? Yes. But I'm not, I don't have to. I will. I don't have to. Like I did before I was saved. Before I was in union with Christ. You see? Sanctification. You're daily in this process of living out this reality that you are no longer a slave to sin. You see? That's been severed. That's been broken. You're united to something different. And it's to the resurrected Christ. Okay? All right, look at this. Verse 7. For he who died is freed from sin. Who's died? Christ and you. Right? Christ and you. You did with him. Okay. Is this boring? Are you okay? This is life, man. Right? This is, this is eternal life. Here and now, preparing you for eternity, right? This is the so what of the resurrection, man. Verse 8. Now, he's, he's, okay, gather your thoughts, right? And all these loose ends, bring them together. Verse 8. Now, if we have died with Christ, and that rhetorical question is assuming the reality, indeed you have, we believe that we shall also live with him. Verse 9, he uses that same idea of knowing. This is what we're convinced of. That Christ, having been raised from the dead, is never to die again. Death no longer is master over him. If that's true of him, Paul is saying, that's true of those who are in him. Do you see what he's saying? I am different because of this union with the resurrected Christ. Okay. He goes on to say in verse, um, the end of verse 9, death no longer is master over him. Now get this. He's using this language of slave and master. Slave and master. 
Before conversion, we were slaves to sin. Sin and the devil was my master. In Christ Jesus, we no longer have those masters. I have a new master. I'm a slave of righteousness. I'm a slave of God. Yeah? Okay. Look at what it says. Um, Verse 10 starts with 4. He's further explaining out verse 9. He says, what do you mean by this death no longer is master? Well, for the death that he died, Christ, he died to sin once for all. Once for all. It was sufficient. But the life that he lives, he what? He lives to God. Now, notice, this is the experience of Jesus Christ. Crucified, buried, raised. No longer does sin have any impact on him. He will never die again. The resurrected Christ. Sin is no longer master over him. And his life now is lived entirely unto God because he's been freed from sin. Okay? That's true of everybody who's in union with him. So he goes on to say... Look at how he says in verse 11, Even so, consider, think, yourselves to be what? And alive to God. Your battle with daily sin begins with understanding who you are in union with Jesus Christ. You are no longer a slave of sin. You are no longer uh, under its tyranny. So quit living like it. That's what he's saying. You quit living like it. You start to live like you are in Christ Jesus. He is raised from the dead. No longer a slave under the tyranny of sin. And so are you. So knock it off, as they would say. <laughs> right? Knock it off. Live, live like a Christian in Christ. It's amazing. Um, well, if, if, look at verse, uh, look at verse, I said the whole chapter is incredible, but, um, I'm, I need to skip over to, um, 16 and 17 and maybe 18. (laughs) Look at this, please. 16. Do you not know that when you present yourself to someone as slaves for obedience, You are slaves of the one whom you obey. That's logical, right? Either of sin, which results in death, or of obedience, which results in righteousness. Verse 17, but, contrast, thanks be to God that though you were, look at the tense, you were slaves of sin, you became obedient from the heart to that form of teaching to which you were committed. Verse 18, and having been freed from sin, you became what? Slaves of righteousness. Those who were once slaves of sin are now slaves of righteousness. And then he'll go on and say, I think it's slaves of God. Yeah, look at verse 22. Verse 22, he says, but now having been freed from sin and what? Enslaved to God. Right? By that virtue, that spiritual union with the resurrected Jesus Christ, you died with Him when He died. You were buried. You were raised from the dead. And as His life now is a life lived unto God, so too is us who are in union with Him. We are no longer slaves of sin. And we are to consider ourselves in verse 11 
to be dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. That's a big, that's a, that's a huge difference, isn't it? To say, well, I just can't help it. Really, so Christ is powerless. Christ is useless. It's all up to you, right? It's all up to you. No. That's that borderline blasphemy, frankly. It is. It's borderline blasphemy. We don't have to. When you do, you confess. But I don't have to. It begins with the mind. Consider yourself dead to sin. What would dead to sin mean? Give your own... What's your your own amplification of that? Say again. You don't walk in the same way you used to. And what does that look like? If you're dead to sin, what would alive to sin mean? What if I'm alive? What if I'm a? If I'm alive to sin, am I not? I'm. Uh, I'm. Uh, I'm animated toward it. I, I. I'm subject to it. I, I. I participate in it. I'm alive to it. You see, if I'm dead, it has no impact to me. It's like being dead to God before conversion. You're dead in your sins, right? Dead in your trespasses and sins. You have no no sensitivity towards God. If I'm dead to sin, I have no sensitivity towards sin. That's what he's saying. So it starts in the mind. Live in light of what Christ has already done. And that is he died, buried, and was raised, and you are in union with him. Now now consider yourself dead to sin as he's dead to sin. And consider yourself alive, animated toward God as he is toward God. All that is possible because of the resurrection. If Christ ain't raised from the dead, none of this is true. None of this matters. And you're dead in your sin. It does, you can't do any of this. There's no hope for anybody. Right? Okay. Look at chapter 7. 4, 5, and 6. This is amazing. He, 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 this is a long discussion on this very same thing. And he, spent, he uses this uh, analogy in verses 1 through 3 of a marriage. Okay? And he's talking about the law of God. And while, while the husband and wife are, are married and alive, they cannot break that marriage and marry someone else. Okay? That's adultery. Okay? But look at what he says in verse 3. So then, if while her husband is living, she's joined to another man, she shall be called an adulteress. Okay? But if her husband dies, she's free from the law so that she is not an adulteress, though she's joined to another man. Okay? So death, the woman is free to marry someone else. He uses that analogy to show the freeness of the person in Christ from the law of God. Look at verse 4. Therefore, my brethren, you also were made to die to what? To the law. How? Through the body of Christ. That body that was crucified. Yeah? Notice, so that, verse 4, you might be joined to another, to him, who are you joined to instead of the law? To him who's raised from the dead, Jesus Christ. And what is the result of this spiritual union to the resurrected one? Do you see it in verse 4? What is the last phrase? Yes. So that in order that we might bear fruit for God. It's made possible because you've been, you've been put to death, therefore died to the law and all its stipulations and penalties and condemnation. Because all that was poured on Christ. And when He died... 
You died when you believe. You died. Therefore, all that is paid for. Therefore, the law has no, no jurisdiction over you because now you are in union to someone else, and that is to the resurrected Jesus Christ. And now you can bear fruit for God, as it says, that we might bear fruit for God. Verse 5, For while we were in the flesh... The sinful passions, which were aroused by what? The law. the law. Don't do this. What do we do? We do it. Yeah. <laughs> it arouses. It's like telling your kid, don't jump on the bed. It's the first thing that sucker wants to do is jump on the bed. <laughs> right? It's just how we're made. It's sin. Law proves that we are sinful. That's why it says in verse 5, the sinful passions are aroused, awakened, not suppressed by the law of God, but awakened. Not because the law is bad, because we're bad. Right? But look at what it says. Aroused by the law, we're at work in the members of our body to bear fruit for what? Death. You see, the contrast here is those who are under the law bear fruit to death. Those who are united to Christ are bearing fruit for God. And then verse 6, it gets even gooder. Look at what it says. But now, now, presently, we have been, look at the tense, already, released, set free from what? The law. How? Having died to that by which we were bound, so that the result we serve in newness of the Spirit and not in oldness of the letter. It's awesome. By the fact of your union to the resurrected Christ, you're, you're, you're freed up from the dominion and the penalty and the condemnation of the law of God, and now you're freed up to bear fruit to God because you're in union with Jesus Christ. He paid your penalty in full and set you free. You see, the law is for sinners, not for the righteous. Guess what? You're righteous in Christ. Right? You're righteous in Christ. Um, oh, yeah, might as well. Ephesians 2. Ephesians 2, again, I want to see the union, and this, we'll go real briefly here. 2, 4, Ephesians 2, 4, 5, and to 7, most likely. But it says, after, after it shows that we're sinful and it, by nature, at the end of verse 3, verse 4, but God, being rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, verse 5, even when we were dead in our transgressions, what did He do? Made us alive together with who? With Christ. Now notice, we were dead when He made us alive. Dead people don't do anything. right? Dead is inactive. God, God's grace approached the spiritually dead person, awakened them, made them alive. How? By uniting them to Jesus Christ, who is alive. If the resurrection isn't real, that's not true. Okay? He goes to say, verse 5, By grace you have been saved. Verse 6, notice the union again. Notice the union. Verse 6, Raise us up with Him. Not only were you raised with Him in verse 6, notice what else? And seated us with Him. Where? In the heavenlies in Christ Jesus. So right now, by virtue of spiritual union with resurrected and ascended Jesus Christ, you are spiritually, I don't know how to explain this, I just believe what it says. 
You're in union with the resurrected, ascended Christ. That's amazing. That's why this is not our home. I'm in union with the heavenly one. Look at what else it says, please. Verse 7. Why did God do this? In these previous verses, why did God do this? Verse 7. So that in the ages, notice, plural ages. Interesting. How many ages are there? <laughs> right? There's more coming. There's at least, I only know one more coming, but this seems to mention more. We'll just go with that. The plurality of ages to come, God might show the surpassing riches of His grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. That's why He has united in you with His resurrected, glorified, ascended Son. So that He can show off His glory in your life. He can show off His grace, His mercy. That doesn't happen if there's no resurrection. That doesn't happen. This, this process of sanctification begins by being united to Jesus Christ who then has freed you from the, the, the tyranny of sin and the tyranny of the law. And now you are free in Christ Jesus to live for God. And you will bear fruit for God by walking in Christ Jesus. You have a new nature, a new disposition because of this union with the resurrected Christ. He made you alive, it said there in Ephesians 2. Right? He, by virtue of the resurrected Christ who has come to indwell you. Galatians, and I'm going to finish this by just rambling here. Galatians 2.20, Paul says, I have been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ lives, present tense, in me. That's not true if he's not raised from the dead. Right. right? Christ lives in me. According to 1 Corinthians 3, I'm a temple of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit indwells me. According to Romans 8, 11, the Spirit that raised up Christ indwells us will also give life to your body, right? And so Christ lives in us through the Holy Spirit. You see, Christ in His physical, real body is at the right hand of God interceding for us. The virtue of that resurrected Christ and by being in union with Him is we now have the power to say no to sin and yes to God. Right? And sanctification is that process to which you say yes to God more than you say yes to sin. Yeah? That's what this is, what virtue of the resurrection. And so his life is in you. Christ is in you. What is, what is, what is Christ in you ultimately trying to perform in us? What is the goal? Sanctification. When I'm fully sanctified, who are you going to look like? The image of Christ. That's full sanctification. That's glorification. That's Romans 8, 29, predestined to be conformed to the image of Him, right? Of Christ, so that He be the firstborn among many brethren. Think of this. Christ in us, the resurrected Christ in us, is sanctifying us, conforming us more and more into His very image. Two verses, and I leave you alone. Just listen. I can't get away. Let's listen. Because if this is true, what I'm going to read to you, it should just keep you up at night with joy and happiness and stunned at the grace of God. Listen to Philippians 3, and then I'm going to go to 1 Corinthians 15. Listen to this. First, Philippians 3, 20 and 21. 
For our citizenship is in heaven, from which we eagerly wait for a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. What will He do when He comes? Verse 21, who will transform the body of our humble state, that's this one, into conformity, likeness with the body of His glory. How? By the exertion of the power that He has even to subject all things to Himself. God will exert His power in your physical life to conform you into the very likeness of the resurrected Christ. This one you're already in union with now. You are being made into His very image. 2 Corinthians 3.18 You behold Him as in a mirror, the glory of God in the face of Christ. You're being changed from glory to glory to glory. One last one. 1 Corinthians 15. All this is good stuff, but if he's not raised from the dead, I'm speaking lies to you, right? But he is raised from the dead. Listen to two verses, 15, 48, and 49. This gets me excited. As is the earthy, he's comparing the first Adam and the second Adam, Adam and Jesus. As is the earthy, so also are those who are earthy, okay, of the earth. And as is the heavenly, speaking of Christ, so also are those who are heavenly. Next verse 49. Just as in this way we have borne already the image of the earthy, Adam. That's this right here. Right? We will also bear the image of the heavenly. So just as certain, get this, and then... It's so certain that you will bear the image of Jesus Christ glorified. Your confidence should be unshakable because you can touch yourself. He says, just as we have borne the image of the earthy, that's me right here, (laughs) right? Want to see it again? This is how certain you should be that you're going to be made in the image of the heavenly. Isn't that just sweet of God to give us a constant reminder, to give us an absolute assurance that we're going to be resurrected in the image of Christ is just look at your body right here. Awesome. And that's because Christ was raised. That's because you're united to this Christ. He not only justified you once and for all so that you are standing in a, in a perfect position of righteousness before God. He's in the process right now making you more and more like Jesus Christ. And that's the resurrected Christ who's living in you and you are united with. And He is making you more like His Son. And He has promised, He who began the good work will finish it, will complete it in the day of Christ. Amen. So let us consider ourselves dead to sin and alive to God. Amen.